It's always a wonderful privilege to be able to walk in the pulpit and look out and see a full house and be able to see everyone with your intent to be able to meet together, to worship God, to study His Word. This morning I'm going to preach a lesson which will be hopefully challenging to each of us. And now that I have your attention, I want to announce the title of the lesson. What did you say? I want to ask you to keep your Bibles open there to 2 Kings chapter 6. And I will point out to you that the kind of political and national factions that we have seen in our society are not new. In fact, if you will study through your Bible, you will find that history has recorded numerous times that either within a country where you have someone trying to gain a position over someone else, whether it be for Rehoboam or Jeroboam, or whether it be for Korah trying to strive against Moses, you can see it within a nation. And you can often see it within countries as one nation seeks to gain uh, an advantage over the other. As you go to 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 8. And as you turn there, let me really just describe the passage and then we'll read it together. You have to remember that one of the neighbors of Israel was Syria. Syria often would seek to dominate and to control the Israelites. And you had various kings who would rise and they would send raids into the other country. And the king of Syria is now ready to send raids into the country of Israel. And so as we read the record, now the king of Syria was making war against Israel and consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants together and said to them, Will you not show me which one of which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Aha, you're saying. Secret things get told. In fact, our political landscape is being marred by two massive failures running for president. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. I'm not going to hold back. And someone might say, but you're being political. Do you remember in Luke chapter 13, Jesus said about Herod, go tell that fox. And if you'll remember carefully reading in the book of Mark, he talked about the Herodians and they often sought to take the life of Jesus 
along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'd suggest to you that the events that were found in 2 Kings 6 are not that different from our society today. First of all, WikiLeaks has exposed Miss Clinton as being a liar. It is shown that a lot of things that she thought she said in secret were actually different from what she was saying in public. And yet it has been revealed, it's been told, just like Elisha told the king of Israel the things that she really said. Mr. Trump fares no better. A couple of weeks ago, a tape surfaced between him and a Mr. Bush in which he said some extremely vulgar and vile things about a lady that was in his presence. The truth is, both of them had things that they thought were spoken in secret. They thought no one would find out about them, and no one would ever know about them, would ever reveal them. In fact, most of us in our minds would say, they ought to be ashamed of themselves. They ought not be doing things like that. Well, let's take a little journey for a moment. Let's go to Luke chapter 12. I want to look at verses 1 through 3 as the Lord addresses his apostles. He said to them, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, Now, while I pause there and you're turning, that's where the ark encounter was at yesterday. So many people, they were trampling one another. He said, he began to say to the disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Pause for just a moment. The leaven and the uh, bad part of the Pharisees was their hypocrisy. They gave an impression outwardly they were one thing, but if you read Matthew 23, he said you're full of extortion and dead men's bones. You want to outwardly appear to men to be religious, but inwardly you're not. Verse 2, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is warning his disciples. I want you to understand that whatever you say can become public. And will become public. If you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12. You are very familiar with the passage, I'm sure. You may not know the reference, but I'm sure you're familiar with the passage. Do you remember David and what he had done? How that he had tried to hide his uh, adultery with Bathsheba? And when Nathan the prophet is sent to him to rebuke him for what he has done, he said, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. David, you thought that you were hiding what you were doing, but that's not going to take place. Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. You see, the reason why... Elisha knew what was being said in the bedroom of the king of Syria was because God was revealing it to the prophet. 
The truth is, is that God knew what David was doing in that inner chamber of the king's palace. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14 says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. What I want you to take away from this lesson is not what Miss Clinton has said, not what Mr. Trump has said, but what did you say? Is there something that you and I have spoken somewhere along the way that we don't want to come out that's locker room talk? Is there something we wouldn't want to come out that was not honest and not true and not forthright? Well, here's what we're going to do in our lesson this morning. We're going to look at a trio of terrifying passages. And obviously, time will not permit me to go through every detail of these, but I really want to just like running three bases. I want to run and touch this base, touch this base, and touch this base, and then we'll make it home as we study our conclusion. The first one we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. As you look at Matthew chapter 12, I want to give you a little bit about the context. The Lord has been healing, and he has been casting out demons. The people that are present before the Lord hate him. In fact, they have such a spite for him, they would say bad things about him. And it says in chapter 12, verse 24, that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. They were taking Jesus, doing good, and they were charging him with doing it by the power of the devil. As you read a little bit further, Matthew's record will explain that they did so because they had a heart problem. The reason why bad words were coming out of their mouths is because they had a bad heart to start with. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. As you go a little bit further and look at verses 36 and 37, the Lord's response to these was very simple. He pronounced a judgment upon them by saying, But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, it's pretty plain here. These people who were speaking against the Lord were going to be judged by that. Just as much as people would speak truth would be judged by what they said on the day of judgment. Now, I'd like to make a few observations very quickly about this set of verses Number one is a lie is first conceived in the heart. If I lie to you or you lie to me or we lie to one another, the reason why we're doing so is because you and I had a lie in our heart to start with. 
We only spoke it, but we had it first in our heart. Matthew 15 and verse 19, Jesus explaining about where bad things come from. He says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. All that's where it comes from. Proverbs 12, 20, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. Or Jeremiah 23, verse 26, how long will it be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are the prophets of the seats of their own heart. They've already had it in their heart. They know what they want to say, and they'll tell people what they want to happen, whether it is from God or not. Thus, if you want to clean up a person's language, you clean up their heart. We live in a society today that treats symptoms rather than treats the causes of them. We're people who want to only fix the outward part and without fixing the inward part. If you want a man's language to reflect good things, you've got to change that man's heart first. And the third thing that you ought to observe from this is God will actually judge us by what we say. That ought to sink in. Let's go to our second passage now. Let's go to Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. We're going to look at Ephesians 4 verse 29, verse 31, and then chapter 5 verses 3 through 6. And as you turn to the book of Ephesians, I will tell you that Paul is trying to persuade them to walk as children of light. He's trying to contrast the way the world lives with the way that godly people live. And so he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification? that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now you can skip down just a few verses to chapter 3, or chapter 5, verse 3. And he'll say, But all fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now when you listen to those words, he's saying that an ungodly world uses speech, but God's people do not. A corrupt speech one that uses vile words, ugly words, corrupt words. As I was sitting there just this morning 
after the prayer thinking about what I would say here and talking about the kind of speech that has to impart grace to the hearers. Something that is favorable, something that is helpful, something that is good, something that is edifying. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace. Season with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You and I as Christians don't need the the kind of language that is ugly and vile and putrid. We don't need to be using the kind of language that deceives and lies and twists. Some are mistaken to think they can talk like this as long as they don't act on it. Mr. Trump made the statement a couple weeks ago that this was only a locker room talk that he never intended to act upon it. I have no idea whether he did or did not. But I do know this. The Bible is very plain about the kind of language we use. And some people say, well, I was only saying it. I didn't intend to do it. Well, I want you to go back to the Lord's great sermon on the mount. I want to pick up with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, and then we'll skip a little bit down to verses 27 through 28. He said, you have heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Pause for just a moment there. The idea you don't want to kill somebody because that would be a violation of the law. Notice verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Reka, that shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. You mean the Lord says it's not only what you do, but what you say? Someone says, well, I don't know. I fully get that. Well, drop down to verses 27, 28, and you'll understand. He said, you have heard it said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see what the Lord is saying. Here's what I tried to establish in the introduction. And that is, is that what a person is thinking in his mind and what a person says coming out of his mouth leads to what a person does. And the idea of those hypocritical Pharisees was, I, as long as I don't kill somebody, as long as I don't actually commit the act, that I can say anything I want to say or think anything I want to think. And the Lord said, that's not true. In fact, you will be judged on the basis of what you think and what you say. Many are rightly ashamed of things that they have said earlier in life. If I were to ask every one of the men in this audience, how many of you have said things about perhaps women or others that you wish now you hadn't said and you're ashamed of it? If I ask you to raise your hand, I'm afraid that many of us would have to sheepishly raise our hand. But you see, the difference is a person who becomes a Christian doesn't continue to do that. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 21, Paul is trying to persuade the Romans to look back at who they were. He said, what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? 
For the end of those things are death. In fact, if I were to ask everybody, is there something in your past that you are ashamed of that you wouldn't want announced before this audience this morning? And you'd say, well, yeah, there's a lot of things I'm ashamed of. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. There's some things about which you and I may be ashamed. But it's just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, after Paul enumerates a number of sins of which they would have committed, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. The truth is, is that when a person becomes a Christian, they put that behind them. You remember what Ananias told Saul, Acts 22, verse 16? And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's when the Lord says, as he spoke of in the Hebrew writer's writings in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10, he said, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So as I look at Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, what do I step away with? I understand that as a Christian, I don't do those things anymore. Now, if you'll focus with me for just a little bit on the book of James... If you flip over to the book of James, we're going to primarily notice just a few verses from chapter 3. But I will tell you that James, as a writer, was deeply concerned with man's use of the tongue. He just said in chapter 1 and verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Slow to speak. Be careful, little mouths, what you say. When you get to chapter 1 and verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He says if you don't make some effort to try to control what you're saying, He said, you have a religion that's not worth anything. And I would ask, is your religion worth anything? Is it doing anything to control what you are saying? Whether it be wicked, vile, vulgar words, whether it be the truth, whether it be gossip, whether it be anything, are you making an effort? You get to chapter 3 and James' writing then focuses specifically on the tongue. And he starts out by pointing out to the teachers, the preachers. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. Will God judge us, each one, everyone, for what we say? Absolutely. But God looks at the teacher, he looks at the preacher and he says, now I really judge you and your judgment's going to be stricter because you know better. You can't teach what you don't know. 
Will God hold me accountable for what I say this morning? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the truth is, everyone stumbles and fails in controlling their tongue. If you'll drop down with me to James chapter 3, let's look at verse 2 and verse 8. He said, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Well, you know that none of us have done that and can, or can do that. He concludes in verse 8, but a no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil. It is full of deadly poison. Have any of us ever got to the point where we say, you know, I don't have a problem with my tongue anymore? No. As soon as you think you have it mastered, that's when you failed. That's when you quit trying. James goes further to point out how that we often use our tongues in a hypocritical way. Because what we will do is we will bless God while we at the same time curse our fellow man. Puts it very simply with it, we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. We sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and then we say, oh, how I hate his children. And our tongues can be used for so much evil and cause so much harm. Let me make a few observations, and then we're going to round it to home one can get to the point where their wicked words no longer bother them. I know I have met, and I'm sure many of you have met those who use the Lord's name in vain and they don't even think about it anymore. There was a time when the words spoken on the movies used to promote a gasp. Why would they say that? Why would they use that four-letter word? Now it seems as if the television shows are just peppered with them all throughout. Jeremiah 6 verse 15 says, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall, and at the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. You know what's bad is, when you listen to the words that have been spoken by some of these folks, we've heard these words. In fact, they've become a part of a, some people's everyday vocabulary. Paul would write about them in second, or First Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, saying, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Their conscience is seared. They can lie to you and look you straight in the eye. Ephesians 4, verse 19, who being past feeling. Their face doesn't turn red. There's no shame in their voice. They can say these things with no remorse whatsoever. Folks, that's a dangerous position to be in. 
young men, and I sing you out because the Bible does, you should be extra careful that your speech reflects such that cannot be condemned. When Paul wrote Titus, he said to him, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Now listen carefully to verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing to evil to say of you. And when he wrote Timothy, the young preacher, let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, impurity. All you see, the kind of talk that young men banter about sometimes is, oh, that's just youth. No, 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 no. Scripture says you need to be careful of that. We rightly express disappointment in our leaders. I'm sure that many of you are just as disgusted as the behavior of our leaders as I am and those potential leaders. We should demand better out of them. We should expect better out of them. Oh, I know that none of them are going to be perfect. None of them are Christians. None of them are godly people. But you see, you wish you could ask for a little bit better, demand a little bit better. But how many of us would be embarrassed to have our own words read before this audience? Mr. Trump was embarrassed by what he had said, and he should have been. And you know... You think about yourself. In fact, I really want to end it. What did you say? If you said something privately, you need to fix that. You need to go to God and you need to ask and beg His forgiveness. If you said something to someone else that you shouldn't have said, you need to go and Tell them that you are sorry for what you've said and that you want to be forgiven and you want to do the right thing. It's probably the case that there's some of us here this morning that are not Christians. And let me tell you what a great thing that you can enjoy this morning. You can look back on every sin that you have committed in your past, every one of them, and know that God will wipe the slate clean. You become a New Testament Christian and all your sins and your iniquities will be wiped away. Well, how can that happen? Because you believe in Jesus Christ? Because you're willing to repent of those sins? You're willing to use your mouth for something good to say that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and then to be baptized. That baptism puts you into Christ where you come in contact with the saving blood that covers all those sins. But it may be that you're here this morning and you say, I know what I need to do. I need to, as a Christian, I need to fix what's broken in my life. 
What a wonderful privilege we have to be able to approach God in prayer. If you need to respond, please come while we stand and sing.